Welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast, where you'll get actionable tips and advice on major gifts, direct response fundraising, legacy giving, and much more from leading experts in the nonprofit sector. Before we start the show today, I want to tell you about an upcoming fundraising training I'm going to be attending. This live online workshop is called Seven Figure Fundraising, and it's all about growing major donor support. They go through the mindset you need for making seven-figure asks and help you build your own donor pitch. Then they teach you a step-by-step system for growing existing major donor support and finding new major donors. The great thing about it is that this workshop is taught by a nonprofit CEO, so you're getting advice on what works today. The live online workshop is for one afternoon a week for three weeks. It starts on February 16th, and you can register at sevenfigurefundraising.com. I'm excited to be attending, and I've asked their team to extend a discount to all my listeners. All you have to do is use the code RAINMAKER at checkout for a 5% discount off your ticket. I encourage you to attend with me this live online seven-figure fundraising workshop starting on Feb 16. To sign up, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com, and don't forget to use the code RAINMAKER for a 5% discount. Hi, welcome to the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Olson, and I'm joined today by my co-host and partner in crime, Roy Jones. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. Hey, everyone. I'm thrilled to have Alan Clayton with us today. He's the chairman of Philanthropy and Fundraising International and a director at Philanthropy and Fundraising North America, Philanthropy and Fundraising Europe and New Zealand and Australia. Alan's worked with over 350 nonprofit organizations in more than 30 countries in his career, and he spent the last decade developing PFI's global program, The Great Fundraising Organizations. Alan, welcome to the show today. Thanks very much, Andrew. Great to meet you. Hey, man, really, really excited to uh, have this conversation with you. Before we get started on the questions, if you would um, take a few minutes to tell our listeners a little bit more about who you are and about what your organization does. Okay, well, I'm like many of us, an accidental fundraiser, but that accident has been running for 25 years now. Um, I was an in-house fundraiser, a couple of national organizations here in the UK, uh, then ran an agency based in London, uh, London, England for 10 years, exited that about 10 years ago uh, when we when we struck on the, the current business model uh, of helping nonprofits build their own capacity to increase their fundraising revenue. And we've been operating that through a seminar system ever since. Awesome. So um, let, let's talk about PFNA, Philanthropy and Fundraising North America. What have you all set out to accomplish? Okay. Um, we, we, we want to achieve two things. Okay. We want our clients, the, the nonprofits, to impact the world by transforming their voluntary income, their fundraised income. And the second objective is we want to enrich and fulfill the lives of people giving the money so that it's a, it's a joyous, enriching, purposeful experience. Well, those are uh, great objectives. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I, I know you've worked with a lot of organizations in a lot of different places. What do you see as the biggest obstacles to great fundraising and to growth in nonprofit organizations? Um, without doubt. The, the, the biggest obstacle is uh, compromise between different functions inside a nonprofit as a way of overcoming internal conflicts about fundraising. Hmm. And the reason for the compromise is insufficient understanding of the business of fundraising at the very top 
of organizations. Um, in many, many nonprofits that are very senior, very clever people, predominantly from finance, legal, or project side, who reach the top of the organization, and they're always the dominant group uh, at, the, at the top who are professionals and everything else except fundraising. Except when it comes to fundraising, the professionals end up being governed by uh, people that we rather jokingly refer to as aloof people. A-L-O-O-F. It's an acronym uh, for amateurs with a lot of opinions on fundraising. <laughs> I think I've met a lot of those people. Yeah. <laughs> so people say fundraising should work this way, but it doesn't. It works that way, but it should work this way. And because of the consensual cooperative culture of nonprofits, when the opinions of non-fundraising departments clash with the fundraising department, they compromise. And this has come to a head in recent years in the fundraising that was less than tight and focused could flourish when the market wasn't full. Mm. But when the market starts to fill up, then an organization needs to focus, energize, and differentiate itself to grow its fundraising. And with compromised messaging, compromised investment, and compromised business practices, one loses one's position in the market. And that's the problem we're seeking to overcome. Okay. So I just a, a quick follow-up on that. Um, you know, that, that's a big shift to make in organizations. Yeah. Um, what are some of the what are some of the most effective ways that you've found to help guide that conversation and bring an organization to the point where they're ready to even admit that they do that? Uh, <laughs> Three-stage three process, inspiration, education, and design. Okay. Inspiration, help people believe it, which is case studies and evidence, evidence and case studies, case studies, evidence, and then the odd anecdote to bring some emotion, humor, and energy to it. Um, once people start to believe it, then, then detailed uh, education. And then the third one is design. Um, which is creating great fundraising programs, but involving the leadership and all the other departments so they don't only understand what fundraising is doing, but why they're doing every individual stage of it. Um, there, there is a breakthrough moment, particularly for boards, chief executives, and the, the C-suite of other non-fundraising departments, is when they realize that the business of delivering services from a nonprofit is not the same business as fundraising. <laughs> Somewhere back in the 1980s, somebody brought the idea of an integrated organization, an integrated culture, an integrated message, a single voice for the whole organization to nonprofits. Um, and, and that's where we get a lot of these problems from because they're two different businesses. The business of service delivery is about meeting the needs of service users. The business of fundraising is meeting the needs of donors. They're not the same. They're different transactions. And what's more, they're different cultures. One is incremental, evidence-based, uh, and uh, profession means many, many years of education in social work or medical research or in international development. Whereas the other one is predominantly a sales and marketing culture. One is rational, one is emotional. One moves at a, at, at a measured pace to ensure quality. One moves fast because it's in the emotions business. And if you want to have a single voice, a single culture, a single message, then you need to compromise one or the other or both. 
and then you've compromised and you either have poorer quality of services or less money or indeed both. So the breakthrough moment for the C-suite is when they realize they're managing two businesses, not one. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. I'm, I'm really curious, you know, that, that kind of breakthrough makes a lot of sense to me. Does it work for everybody? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to keep some of my anecdotes to myself <laughs> so far every c-suite and board that has been prepared to put the effort in mm. and to not compromise has succeeded it's an evidence-based program you know the the the, the facts and the, the and the evidence are there but that does not mean it's easy to do it is hard work and it takes leadership that, that combines great empathy with tremendous resolve, which is not the easiest thing to do. So talk a little bit more for me, if you can, about, you know, what is the exact process that you have to go through, you and your team, when you are, are leading these organizations to that aha moment? And, and what are some of the conflicts that typically come up in those discussions? Okay, so the, 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 there is no exact process because okay. in between evidence and outcome, there, there, there's a difficult thing to deal with, which is people. <laughs> um, and anyone that says there's an exact process to align people emotionally under a common dream and get them to, to, to walk in time towards changing the world is, is, is they can do that through a step-by-step -step process is... Uh, at best idealistic, <laughs> worst <laughs> naive. Um, so the, the way I describe the process that works is it's 50% logical. So it's, it's educative and uh, allows one to put the structural and business case in place. And it's 50% cultural, which means emotional, mm. which means overcoming people's fears, overcoming their jealousies, let's be honest about it, mm. uh, and getting them uh, lined up into different places. There, there, there are many you know, conflicts that can pop up, but there are three structural conflicts about fundraising that exist and should exist in every fundraising organization on, on planet Earth. One is the cultural conflict between the fundraising function and all the other functions. Uh, the second is the investment conflict between fundraising and all the other functions. And the third one is the communications conflict between fundraising and all the other functions. They should exist because it's two different businesses. It's how those conflicts are managed. They should constructively work alongside each other rather than be an open conflict or resolved by compromise. Okay. So it's quite, I want... a, it's quite a leadership challenge. And those three conflicts exist in every fundraising organization I've ever seen. Yeah, I, I want to dig into one of those a little bit um, since you brought it up that the investment conflict, right? So I've, yeah. you know, I've been doing this work now for about uh, 21 years. And, yeah. you know, I, I can't count the number of times I've had a CEO say to me, well, wait a minute, because every dollar I spend on fundraising is a dollar I'm going to rob from programs. Well, that is, of course, true in the short term. If you're talking about next week, that's true. Um, however, fundraising is the most profitable business over the middle term that I've ever seen. Uh, and I've worked in plenty of businesses. If you're prepared to invest for two years, one year, three years, then fundraising will make an awful lot more money. So you might spend a dollar today on fundraising, it might be on programs, but in three years time, you have $5, $7, $10 to, to spend on programs. But I actually 
unusually for a fundraiser, have huge sympathy for the CEO who says that. Because if you look at leadership through all of history, the most difficult decision to make is the trolley dilemma. Do I have to sacrifice the few to save the many? And that is the decision that that CEO was actually faced with. And for some of our clients, that's literally true. Do I have to let some people continue suffering right now in order to save 10 times as many in three or four, two years' time? Mm. It is the most difficult leadership decision anybody ever makes. So I've got some sympathy, but the truth is it's robbing today, but paying back big time tomorrow. And if you're the CEO, that's what you get the big bucks for, making those tough calls. So uh, I, I agree with you. That is really the toughest decision. Um, and, and I appreciate you putting it in that context. It, it makes a lot of sense. I, I want to go back to something you said early on in your response to that question, uh, that you know, fundraising is the best investment. I, I feel like in an earlier conversation you and I had, you talked about um, some of the relative differences between fundraising returns and investment returns. Thoughts on that or, or anything you can share with our audience about the difference uh, between the two? I've got a huge thought on that. If I can find a way of legal, decently, truthfully, and honestly doing fundraising for Alan Clayton's pension fund, I will do it tomorrow. Yeah? If I can find a way to get people to pay $15 a month into my pension, then leave me 100,000 of them the day they pass away. I'm in there. I'm liquidating everything else, and I'm going into fundraising for Could you also add the uh, Andrew Olson's Children's College Fund to that? Uh, absolutely. More than, more than welcome. I'll spread, I'll spread the risk with you. Um, the, the, the sheer numbers of fundraising are simply astonishing. You know, if you, if, you, if you take away the sort of prejudiced view of, well, it should be done by amateurs and therefore it should be done free and such like, which is what we often get from the external, it, the, the returns are just vast. Uh, if, if one looks at lifetime value against the, the cost of getting the first gift over any period of time, the, the, the fundraising returns are just averaged across the sector are simply amazing. It's a wonderful business. So, I, you know, I'm curious about another aspect of, of the charitable business uh, model, and that is to, to sort of stay in this area. An organization that says, we're not going to fundraise anymore. We're just going to create a, a business that generates profit on our behalf, you know, whether it's a, a homeless shelter that's going to create a bakery or, mm -hmm. um, you know, something like that. Um, what do you say to those organizations that say, we're going to do this through social enterprise rather than fundraising? Great, if you can do it. <laughs> but why not do both? Because by shutting down fundraising, you are robbing some very, very good people of the chance to enrich their lives through their giving. Mm. There are people out there that want, need to give to your cause because their life experience, their value set uh, lines up with the problem you're trying to solve in the world. And by good quality fundraising, you enrich them. You help them have more meaning in their life. You help them find a sense of purpose and in later life and you, you help them pass away feeling their time on this world was worthwhile and they've spent it doing good things with, with, with people they're very, very close to. Why would you rob your donors of that? That's a great point. So. I want to key in on one short phrase you said in that response. You said good quality fundraising. Yeah. Find that for us. Uh, fundraising with uh, acceptable and optimized ratio of cost fee long-term income. Okay. And second, the far more important distinction is one which enriches the life of your donors 
as well as the life of your service users. Awesome, thank you. Okay, um, I, I'm I'm curious in in all the engagements that you've had with with nonprofit organizations over the years and and in doing this work, do you find that there are you know a set of key decisions that all the successful organizations make that others don't? Yeah, three of them. Okay, first and foremost, decide to be as good at meeting the emotional needs of their donors as they are at meeting the needs of their service users. Hmm. They don't seek to prioritize one over the other. It's two different businesses. We will just be the best in sector at both. Hmm. We value our donors and we will be the best at serving those because that's the best way to, to generate long-term return and help people uh, die happy. Second is they prioritize investment in fundraising as required. And that's a different shape for every other organization, uh, but they, they, they prioritize growth in order to reach more people or animals. Um, and the third one is they create a set of very powerful and focused fundraising messages, and then they decide on them without compromising them, and then they stick to them long enough for them to work. Hmm. So I've been around the block long enough to know that there's a good chance that they're, you know, an organization that makes a change like that is going to have a knee-jerk reaction and say, oh, this first campaign out didn't yeah. work the way we thought it would. Yeah. It must be a failure. Let's scrap it and move on. Absolutely. How do you navigate that with the organizations that you advise? Well, we break it down into what's the point for fundraising communication because people immediately think it's to raise money. Well, actually, the first point for fundraising communication is to focus and energize your staff and volunteer team. Hmm. That's the first purpose of good fundraising communications is okay. to get you lined up and energized internally, stop the bickering and, and create some action. So that's the first success. And it needs to work for a period of time while you bring in and onboard new people um, and such like. Um, but of course, you then hit the market with your, with your focused and powerful um, communication. Most times, as long as the organization has made the three key decisions, we see a pretty rapid uplift. Um, because focused, even existing donor files respond with a higher uh, energy to a focused, crisp, emotionally powerful um, message. But of course, there is a period, of, particularly in direct response, of testing and refining and optimizing response, optimizing in the in the detail. So alongside the focused messaging, there goes the the learning culture that. Um, Organizations that struggle to have what we term a certainty culture, which is we're only going to invest if we know something's going to work. Whereas the learning culture organization says we'll invest if we trust the team has the capacities, the information and the structures to be continually learning and improving the performance so that we know that you know how to learn how to make it work. I like that. So let's talk about um, something that I, I find often is controversial uh, when I talk with my clients and other organizations, but you've done a ton of research on the impact of brand and fundraising. I think more than anybody I've ever met. Um, yeah. what, what have you learned about the intersection of brand and fundraising and how should nonprofits think about it? I have learned that very few nonprofits know what their brand is for. <laughs> Say more about that. <laughs> We, we did a big research paper, which is available free of charge. Uh, Adrian Sargent and team uh, did that for us. And then when I took the outcomes of that and I applied it across our uh, action study base, I realized that people were just making an assumption that having a 
big brand was a good thing until we started asking them why why is that a good thing and they say well it's a good thing and you go what for and they go, well it's just a good thing go, no it's not <laughs> you're spending money on it you need more of a justification than that so I went out and asked several hundred and put it into four patterns and there were four things that a brand that came up consistently which were the reasons we were investing in brand building. One was fundraising. Two was to increase the credibility of the organization. Three was for internal alignment, particularly for organizations with multiple offices or work in multiple countries. And four was we just want to look good, which we call vanity because we're <laughs> blunt talking in Scottish. Um, we didn't study vanity any further for obvious reasons. That we really don't care whether you look good. It's the mission that we care about. Um, and alignment actually falls in the first two. So it turns out a fundraising, uh, sorry, a, a nonprofit brand only has two purposes, fundraising and credibility. And where the mistake is made is when leadership assume that the way you increase fundraising is prove the credibility of your organization. <clears throat> different things, two businesses, two different messages. Don't integrate them. You either have a fundraising brand or you have a credibility brand. Don't squash the two together. But you can be a great fundraising organization with a credibility brand. That's a level of detail, perhaps, for uh, another time. But the biggest thing I've learned is that very few organizations have defined what their brand is for before they start to build it. Okay. So to follow up on that, there are a number of organizations that I've worked with in the past that come in, have, have this conversation about the importance of brand, and in three months, change everything about their fundraising, right? I'm sure yeah. you've seen this. I'm sure you've seen the impact. Um, yeah. More often than not, maybe 100% of the time that I've seen at least, um, it, it's detrimental to fundraising. Yeah. Um, what is the kind of on the ground reality check, you know, shaking somebody by the shoulders? What, what, what does it look like to really convince an organization that that's a dangerous play and, and they need to think differently about it? How, how does that conversation play out in the discussions you have? Um, in a complicated and sometimes content, sometimes contentious manner, if the if the truth must be told, um, it can go around in circles. Um, there are many many good reasons for building a large brand for an organization, but driving fundraising growth is not um, is not one of them. So we can we can show people the evidence for that, but you you know as well as I do that when people have an emotionally embedded position, you can show them as much evidence as you want, and they they hear what they um they hear what they want to hear. Um, you can have many, many long discussions, but again, the, the, there's a penny drop moment which can take a long time to get to. Um, but people don't give money to organizations. If you're giving money to an organization, you're giving donation to a budget line, to a structural deficit. And I, I, I'm not going to give money and a gift in my will so that somebody has an unrestricted surplus for the next 20 years. You know? <laughs> That's about as much use to me as a chocolate teapot. Why do I want to do that? You know, that's no good. It's when they realize it's actually not about you. Yeah. 
it's about your mission. It's, it's about your service users. Or in fact, it's about the service users you can't reach yet because you don't have enough money. Mm. So it's actually fundraising is about the people you don't help yet. So it's totally not about you. So the great fundraisers, they brand the problem, communicate to the donor what they can do about the problem and get the organization the hell out of the way. That's brilliant. Okay. Yeah. I'm curious, in all the research you've done, um, have you been able to distill what the actual, you know, how much brand actually impacts fundraising? Uh, and, you know, how, how does that work? There's two answers to that question. Okay. Spending money on raising the brand awareness of an organization and its credibility has an effect on fundraising, which is 187th of the effect of direct fundraising expenditure. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Slightly more, <laughs> slightly more than 1%. But on the flip side, having the right or wrong brand has a vast effect, immeasurable, on your ability to raise funds. So brand has a very important role in liberating fundraising to raise money and to get the rest of the organization behind it. And that is extremely valuable. But raising awareness of how good we are at what we do is uh, negligible. Um, and it ends up with an internal culture, not of what can we do for our donors, but we are great, people should give us money. We're great, you should give us money. We're great, you're a bit stupid, so we'd like to educate you as to why you should give <laughs> us some money. You know, which is kind of how it's, it's gone in recent years. And that behavior has become so toxic, we've given a name, we call it nonprofit narcissism. Spend the money on getting the branding brilliant and be educated on what fundraising needs as well as the rest of the organization. But don't just shout about how great you are and expect the money to follow. If you want more service users, shout about how great you are. If you want to influence the government, shout how great you are. But for fundraising, you've actually got to say that you're not good enough yet. Hmm. Because if you're really good and you're helping everybody, then you don't actually need any more money. So you could have 1,412 stories of successful outcomes for your product, and that's 1,412 reasons why you don't need any more money. It's the one you couldn't get to. It's the one you failed or the one you ran out of budget for that is your fundraising case for support. It's an anti-brand. I'm left almost speechless. I agree with everything you said. It makes great sense. Um, and I'm glad somebody's saying it. Here's the question that I think our listeners going to have. They're going to say, this all sounds wonderful. Or maybe they're going to say, I don't agree with it, but it's been an interesting conversation. Um, but I think they're also going to say, prove it. Show me the results, right? So in the few minutes that we've got left together, could you tell us a couple of stories of organizations that have actually done this hard work and how that's impacted their revenue? Yeah, I, well, I've, we've got many of them. Okay. Um, and uh, the, the case studies uh, make up a big chunk of the, the masterclass that we present. Um, but let me just give, let me think of uh, three case studies off the, off the top of my head. And of course, they're, they're spectacularly successful because I, I, the ones that come to mind are the ones with the, 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 the biggest. Uh, Royal Flying Doctor Service in Australia. Uh, had what was perceived as a branding problem and that they don't fly so much now because they don't need to fly quite so much because they can do surgery with robots. They can mm. solve the distance problem. And they um, flipped to a donor-centered brand, so meeting the needs of donors, um, and, and they um, 
increase their fundraised income from $9 million to $50 million in four years. Wow. It was uh, just vast. Uh, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, lifeboats here in the UK, uh, 196 years of a great fundraising organization, then it started to, to drop off. Um, refocused around a fundraising brand-led uh, proposition and had a year-on-year -year immediate return uh, of 139% above their previous year. Wow. Like instant. Um, just, I mean, that was truly spectacular. Uh, and most relevantly in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Lutheran World Relief um, tightened up uh, and relaunched with a, with a refreshed uh, brand strategy. Uh, it's a pretty new one, um, but they've seen a 40% uplift in revenue in the first six months. Wow, that's, that's phenomenal. Yeah. So they, they're, big, they're big numbers. Yeah. And it's not just the messaging and the graphic design that creates the income. It's the freeing up of all the eternal debate because the focus has been decided. So therefore the organization can move faster. The, the, the leadership see the organization move faster. So they're more trusting and speedier with investment decisions. Efficiency goes up because the wheel spinning compromise goes out. People start moving faster. People sell the message harder because they believe in it more. It's simpler for donors. So there's a whole lot of different effects that getting this right has. That, that's fascinating to me. These are, those results are exciting too. Um, I, I appreciate you being here. This has been a great conversation. It's been really insightful. Uh, tell me this, an organization that's listening right now that says, I want to do that. We need to do that. How do they get plugged into what you're doing? 90% of our successful clients or, or, or uh, people that we've taught, uh, they start off by attending the Great Fundraising Masterclass, which runs over four days. And, and what goes on in that masterclass? Uh, the masterclass, there's uh, myself plus a few of our other uh, practitioner consultants. Um, we, we go through, I think it's nine modules. So it's about the behavior of a great fundraising organization. It's not technique. There's plenty of other educators for that. But first of all, how the fundraiser, then the leadership can go about bringing focus energy to a renewed surge of fundraising growth and then the specific activities underneath that. So it's not, it's not what they call behavioral uh, science or anything, it's what the internal people organizations did in order to drive their income. So the first thing they do is learn from the original academic research we did on this subject with Professor Sargent and team. And we then bring it to life with what we've measured across this enormous case study base of successes and failures. Uh, to identify the specific behaviors. Um, and what we do is we draw out the behaviors that are consistent to all rapid growth fundraising organizations. And we can directly compare them to behaviors of the ones that didn't have rapid fundraising growth. Then, of course, we use some fairly sophisticated techniques so people understand the behaviors because behaviors are 50% logical and 50% emotional. So a checklist doesn't work. You have to do some practicing. You have to do some immersion. And most people have to do some believing of their own. So Alan, how, how does somebody who is excited about this and wants to uh, attend the Great Fundraising Masterclass, how do they get signed up for that? What's that look like? Just go to www.philanthropyfundraising.com and the rest is easy. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. One other question. If someone wants to interact with you directly, has questions, wants to connect, What's the easiest way for, for that to happen? 
go to the same website and come via Tina. Tina's the, the rep and uh, just outside DC uh, and she'll hook us up. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. Really appreciate the conversation. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. Please take a moment to rate this episode on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate this episode, it will help more nonprofit leaders just like you to help find us and get the information that they need to raise more funds for their organization. Thanks again for listening today.